Hi guys, welcome to the Art of Acquisitions podcast. Here we discuss how you can create cash flow and grow your wealth with acquisitions. We have a great guest lineup, including Craig. Craig bought two businesses with 10 million in sales, no money down. And Alan, Alan has led multiple deals ranging in value from 1 million to 9 billion. Yes, that was right, 1 million to 9 billion. Art of Acquisitions, simply the fastest strategy to create cash flow and grow your wealth. Welcome everyone to Taylor Capital's live broadcast again. Uh, we have the pleasure and the privilege of uh, Guy Bartlett here today. So uh, Guy Bartlett is a friend of mine, a business buyer, and uh, nothing he loves better to do than an acquisition. Loves the smell of acquisitions in the morning. So Guy, welcome to Taylor Capital's show. Uh, great to have you here. And um, you know, this podcast, if, you, if, if you're into acquisitions, uh, you should uh, follow the podcast. Uh, why acquisitions? Well, for me, it is a simple, uh, simply the fastest way to, to create cash flow, grow your wealth. And we love to get involved in acquisitions of businesses or commercial property. And Guy does too. So Guy, could you give us a little intro as to how, how on earth did you get into acquisitions? How did you stumble across this kind of formula uh, for creating you know, instantaneous wealth kind of thing and cash flow? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's great to be to be here with you, Dan, uh, and for and for the listeners. So, yeah, my my journey started way back when I was a kid. In in truth, because I remember watching the likes of Tiny Rowland and some of those guys, and Zach Goldsmith's dad uh, striding across the business news, um, yeah. you know, buying companies and conglomerates and all kinds of terms that didn't mean much to me, but it sounded very exciting. And then. Fast forward many years later, you know, I had a kind of classic career, I suppose, working my way as an employee. And then in the mid-90s, I, I got offered a job um, to help grow a, a group of business, what became a group of businesses. And in that process, uh, again, enjoyed the sort of classic growth curve, really, you know, kind of rapid mm-hmm. growth, then starting to plateau, working really long hours, getting reasonably well paid, but thinking there's got to be a better way of doing it. Um, and in all honesty, the trigger was I've, I watched a, a friend of mine who lived across the road from me go from sort of modest house that we both lived in to Millionaire's Row in, in, a, in a town in Cheshire. And I was like, how the hell did you do that? <laughs> um, and he he figured out uh, the benefits of acquisition, really. So I pestered him yeah. and understand a bit more about what <laughs> he'd done. And we, we often used to meet over a beer or a coffee and talk about business. And... Uh, you know, he was a, an admirer of the work I'd done organically to, to grow the business. Uh, and I guess through a combination of conversations and a bit of research, it's the idea formed in my head that if we could grow our business by acquisition, so we started to buy our supply chain, so what's called vertical integration, um, then, you know, we could, we could maintain the growth rate and improve the quality and the value of the businesses, really. So that was the, the start point, I guess, Dan. Uh, and then, yeah. and then it was a case of, well, okay, how am I going to do this? Because all the money that we made went back into the business, and the mm-hmm. wages went out the door every every night and things like that. So, and I was uh, at the time we, we were running quite a high profile a- agency group I built up, and um, so I ended up with clients like JD Sports and Sainsbury's Wine and Red Olson Cruise Lines and lots of blue chip customers. <laughs> and that was a direct uh, marketing business, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, so, yeah. I, I'm a fellow of the Institute of Direct Marketing. I used to lecture on the subject, all, all that sort of stuff. And, but we we 
bought a fair amount of um, supplies from things like mailing houses or printers and so on. And mm. why don't we sort of buy those and then we own our supply chain and they will have customers that we can leverage as well. So that was really the logic. And I was literally on a train coming back from London, just been offered another million pound contract from Sainsbury's, which sounded great, but like, okay, get more work. I'm going to, you know, build the team and all that kind of organic stuff, really. And, and I, I was sat on the train and I figured I kind of joined the dots. That was the point where it changed because I went, hang on a minute. If we raise finance of this type and we do this to the balance sheet, I can probably acquire these businesses without needing a big pile of cash on our balance sheet. It's on, it's in their balance sheet. Um, so that was the big change for me. And and I remember kind of twitching in my seat to the point where this guy was like, are you okay? I was like, no, no, I'm, I'm fine. I'm really so, um, so I, and then, I, and then what happened to me was I had a classic shareholder fallout. Uh, my my then partner wanted to sell the business. I didn't. He didn't want to sell it to me, which wasn't very happy. Yeah. Uh, and then we had a fallout. And then a few months later, I fractured my spine. So I was lying in hospital bed going, okay, what's the universe telling me? And I pretty much decided when I, when I got out of hospital, I was just going to give it a go. So yeah, yeah. I spent a few months looking for businesses that I might be able to apply that model to. And in the first six months of 2006, which is when I started, I bought two businesses uh, from scratch with none of my own cash uh, and created a, a small group doing 2.7 million overnight kind of thing um, and, and paid, was able to pay myself and then what seemed like quite a nice income. So, I did it cost you much, much money down on that one? Nothing, nothing, nothing. at all. So, so no money down, no money sweat down, yeah. sweating time, yeah, as always. And it's uh, it's simple, it's not easy, but no money down on an acquisition that's doing 2.7 million a year. Yes, yeah. uh, yeah, it's two, two, two businesses between them. So, uh, over the six mm -hmm. months, so we started in the first deal was January. Second deal was June. So by June, we'd gone from zero to 2.7. Yeah. And when you did the first one in January, how long did it take you when you made the decision to then do a, an acquisition? Well, it's always the case. Once you've done the first one, the second one's easier. So the second no, one. No, your first one. What well, was the, the kind of ramp up? Um, yeah. Sourcing and whatnot. Yeah. I spent probably six months messing about, trying to figure out how to yeah. do this thing. Um, and then probably another couple of months, you know, engaging. And, yeah. and, and actually, at the time, we were also raising money with a venture capital firm to launch a, a, a startup. So we kind of had two horses running anyway. And then in, in November of 2005, the VC said, yeah, we'll give you 3.2 million quid. And two vendors said, yeah, we'll sell to you. So it was like, oh. <laughs> what do we do now? <laughs> Absolutely, happy days. So yeah. six months of six, six months ramping up, and then another six months to acquire two companies, no money down. Um, and how long? This is really interesting. How long have those companies been going for? The companies concerned had been going for um, oh, test of my memory now, off off the top of my head, probably each of them at least five or six years, if not longer. So yeah. I don't so, like. Yeah, I don't buy businesses that are less than five years old because yeah. stats show that you know companies younger than five years, generally speaking, don't make it. So yeah. we try and target more so that's, than five years old. That's interesting. They've been going for six years or something, and within six months, you had one acquired, another six months, another one acquired. So yeah. you're kind of um, doing the last few steps, not doing the 
uh, you kind of have the baby without the, the labor pains kind of thing, which is wonderful, which is, the, I suppose, the big key thing about acquisitions. You're buying cash flow, you're buying assets, uh, and it can obviously change fundamentally your personal economy all like overnight. The day you complete is where you get a deal, or hopefully you get a deal for you every time. Yeah, I mean, I spent marketing agencies a little bit different because they're, they're high, high gross profit, um, fairly high you know, cost base because people get paid quite high wages, not much really in terms of assets on the balance sheet typically. So we, we, we had spent uh, six years building that business up. The best turnover year, we probably turned over about one point, from memory, about 1.5, 1.6 million. Um, as I said, you know, earned, earned a decent salary because I had a six-figure salary because, you know, it's high, high wage rates in those kind of businesses. But in, in, in global terms, you know, it took me six years to get to 1.5, 1.7 million. Yeah. And in six months, I went from six zero months. to 2.7. So yeah, that's great. Incredible. Yeah, exactly. But, but it was just the start, really. So it was like, mm, okay, this is interesting. The other, the other metric, just going back to your point, of, um, really, is if you look at the stats around startups, and the, it's, mm. I find it fascinating because most of the the publicity for entrepreneurship is about startups. Yeah, you know, startups. Support for startups, entrepreneurs, mm. all this sort of stuff. Yet statistics are really bad. You know, 50% mm. of startups fail in the first year. 50% of those continue to fail within the next five years and so on. And, and the vast majority never get past turnover of half a million quid. They remain yeah. micro companies. So you just own a job. So, so another stat I seen was 85% of businesses within the first five years. So within five years, if you've made it, 85% will fail. Mm-hmm. Now, that, and that's a great point. You say make sure they're past year five, year six. So yeah. they've kind of proven themselves and they're yeah. around. So why bother starting a business when you can buy a business? Um, instead of doing five years like Guy did, he then turned into like literally five, six months. Um, so that's great. That's an amazing insight already. Don't buy a business, acquire one. So you're getting yeah. instant cash flow and then you can grow that through bolt-on, buying your supplier chain or bolt-on competitors. But in terms of, there's obviously various different strategies in acquisitions and you lean into a certain one. There's a lot of people doing, you know, trying to get the pound deal where they're distressed and we've certainly done some of them. It's not really my bag, to be honest. Um, and what about you? What's your key strategy in acquisitions, Guy? Yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that one. Um, so just touching on that for, for a moment, the reason we don't do it is, in my experience, and I've, I've been involved in, sadly, I've been involved in businesses that have failed. I've been involved in businesses where I've, I've acted as a consultant to try to turn them around. Uh, and distressed companies are distressed for a multitude of reasons, and it's very difficult, generally speaking, unless you've got a massive bucket of cash to fix yeah. them. And even then, um, you know, there may be sort of, you know, hardwired problems with, with the business. It could be the model, it could be the sector. There's a bunch of reasons, really. So I'm not really a fan of, you know, looking for companies that are on the brink of insolvency or insolvent and, and trying to turn them around. I prefer, and, and there are there are literally thousands and thousands of good, solid, owner-managed companies that have been in the hands of, you know, a family or a couple of individuals for, for, for a long time. The most successful business owners are people that, that have become pretty good at what they do. They only do what they do. They tend to have very poor marketing systems because 
they've got good at what they do with a bunch of customers that, that rely on them and, and word of mouth becomes the main thing. And, and they've, they're, they're classic what I call lifestyle companies. Yeah. They've provided for the lifestyle of the business owner. They've paid off their mortgage, paid for the holiday home, put the kids through university, you know, had all the business owner benefits, the cars, et cetera. But very often, a bit like me with my agency, they kind of plateau. And they plateau for one of two broad reasons. Either they've reached the lifestyle that they enjoy, so why work any harder? And that's perfectly legitimate. Absolutely. Or, or they've reached a level of what I would call competence, conscious competence. So in order to go to the next level, they, the owner knows that they'd have to invest in the board, for example. So yeah. they'll find a finance director or an ops director. And in some cases, they've, they've tried it and they find yeah. it's difficult. They're not very good at recruitment. They're, they're control freaks. Oh, Fred doesn't do as good a job as me. And the whole bunch of reasons. Absolutely. It could be that singularity approach to what they believe is the only road to growth yeah. instead yeah, of yeah. potentially yeah. acquisitions, you know, where they think yeah. growing, you've got to ramp up, you've got to reinvest in infrastructure and the board, yeah. the whole thing. And that's like, sounds like too much like work. And it, yeah. and it is. And, yeah, it you know, is. And, Absolutely. And, yeah, and yeah. I think, the, yeah, yeah, the key thing always comes back to what's your why. And, you know, if you don't yeah. want a big, big company, cool. Um, yeah. But, you know, and many of these, exactly, Dan, and many of these companies do just that. They, they have given their owners a decent lifestyle. And that's brilliant. That's the whole mm. point. So hopefully we pop along just at the point where they go, right, I'm done. You know, I'm, <laughs> I've had what I want out of it. I don't want yeah. it to go bust. I don't want yeah. my staff who helped me to, you know, set up my lifestyle. I want them to be looked after. So yeah. you're in that conversation about the next step. And very often... Almost always, their kids, where they've got kids, are not interested in taking the business on. Because they want to start up their own fun, fintech, prop, or whatever, yeah, some tech or platform. Or they don't want to run a horrible, grimy engineering business. And they, you yeah, know, it's not, it's not cool. It's, it's yeah. not sexy. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, they want to be a laptop millionaire on the beach somewhere yeah. in Bali. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so in terms of when you target companies, what is your kind of sweet spot in revenue and EBITDA kind of thing? Yeah, so so we we play in the in the in the grouping of between two and twenty million. So and, and sometimes a bit tricky to to focus on EBITDA uh, net or even net profit because you don't necessarily know. Most of these companies, the audit threshold is now ten million, um, mm. but the vast majority of them are below ten million anyway. Yeah, um, you do get owner managed companies up to twenty million, but they're, they're a little bit fewer and further between. So most of them are below the audit threshold, which means the data that's available on them in terms of you know, mm. what they're actually making is a bit thin on the ground. So yeah. We tend to focus on a number of metrics. We, we start by looking at the age of the shareholders. So 55 plus is always a good start point. Mm-hmm. You'd be amazed how, how many 70 plus people are still running their business. Amazing. Well, anyway. 70 plus is one of my KPIs right now yeah. to try and you know really fine tune. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So... So 55 plus for us, sometimes, you know, 60, 65 plus. Um, size by numbers of people is often a good indicator. So first of all, you don't want to buy a job. So you want to buy a business where people turn up every day, put the lights on and answer the phones and do the thing because that's what they do. So then you're stepping onto on the business, not in the business. Mm-hmm. So um, S&M, and, uh, not that yeah. kind of S&M, but small and medium, um so 10 to 50 staff or 50 yeah. to 250 that's kind of yeah high so 
Yeah, 10 to 50 staff, obviously over 2 million turnover, or you're 2 to 20, obviously. But what, what advice would you give somebody starting out in terms of their top three KPIs to look for? Obviously, baby boomers, hopefully, you know, 55-year-old uh, plus. But in yeah. terms of revenue, where would you think their sweet spot should be? Obviously, you should have a management team in place so you're not buying a job, as you've said. But yeah. where do you think they're, they're kind of you should start yeah. off in life? So the other key thing to look at is, is, is what's the gross profit performance historically. Now this often for me gets overlooked, but gross profit is really important because gross profit is an indicator of how much room to maneuver you'll have in the business. So uh, I would try to focus on 30% plus. Any business in my experience is, that's producing less than 30% gross profit, you're going to find it more difficult to make the numbers work in a deal. So that's one of the key things. So somewhere between 30 to 50% gross profit, then you're going to be in a fairly happy place. And the other reason for that is, as you know, Dan, a tweak of gross profit, in other words, the price charged to the customers of the company can have a significant impact on the cash of bank if all other things stay equal. So if your overheads don't rise, but you tweak your prices by as little as 3% to your customers, and most Owner-managed businesses are always worried about increasing their prices. They worry that it'll upset their customers. But in truth, most of the time, a customer's not going to notice 2 or 3% price rise. But no. the impact on the cash, when you, when you look at any, any forecast model, is significant. So I look at, at, you know, the higher the gross margin, the easier it is to tweak it, basically, because mm. it's noticeable. So gross yeah. margin is one of the key, key KPIs for us, definitely. Mm. If you're a business owner, professional or SaaS pension trustee and you want to stop the inflation erosion of your capital, you want to create cash flow and grow your retirement capital, but you just don't have the time. Do you want the baby without the labour pains? Then if you qualify, you may be able to invest with us. If that's you, pop along to tailorcapital.co.uk. We do the deals so you don't have to. It's kind of like the Netflix of investing. Yeah, so anyone starting out, it's probably management team in place, two to five million turnover. So you're not trying to eat the elephant all at once. Uh, 30, 50% GP margins. And then um, obviously, hopefully people over 55 year old that want to exit their business. And, you know, so the when the source... The other, key, the other key thing is simple business model. So you and I have talked about this mm. lots of times, but I really like simple business models. So... Companies that operate in sectors where recruiting people won't be too much of a challenge. You know, we're not talking bioscience. We're talking like we operate in a scaffolding sector. So there is a skill level, but it's not complicated. And, you know, labor is more or less readily available, albeit there's a degree of churn. So another example would be, you know, contract cleaning. When all said and done, cleaning isn't all that technically difficult. And there's plenty of people willing to be a cleaner. So... Those sorts of you know repetitive, simple business models are always for me, at least if you're starting out, a good a good start point. Because yeah. you don't need to think too much about what the business does or even be an expert. I've got one of my clients so I've mentored who's bought into engineering, but he's a lawyer. Well, he didn't know anything about engineering. But he, but the good thing is that he doesn't know anything about engineering. So Absolutely. he's focusing on the business and not yeah. on being an engineer. Because he can't which is great. So it focuses you to be outside the business, looking at the forest all the time instead of being in the forest, which is great. 
Yeah. Um, absolutely. So KPIs for someone who's starting out, two to five million revenues, 30 to 50% gross margins, uh, you know, management team in place, owner 55 year old wanting to exit, uh, really simple business model. Yeah. And also uh, one would hope uh, one that's debt free cash in the bank. So you can, you know, there's many ways you can utilize that to actually use the business to actually help you buy the business. But, yeah. you know, if, if they're the kind of KPIs for someone starting out guy, what you know the step before that then what are your your top three um sourcing methods to help people you know where should the focus their efforts because there's so many things you can do these days um what's your top three that you would that brings in more deals leads than everything else put together kind of thing the pareto power sourcing move kind of thing (laughs) yeah i think i i I split deal sourcing into, into two key streams really um in the UK, there is a fairly big uh, network of business brokers, um, and they come in all shapes and sizes. So I call that yeah. sort of the, the broker route. Now, there are what I call retail brokers, um, are quite big companies, and their business model is primarily focused on convincing a business owner that their company's worth multiple, multiple times what it really is. Yeah. Um, just pay me this, this modest fee to go on our books and we'll, we'll have 27 eager buyers banging on your door <laughs> afterwards. And of course, we all know that isn't real. So, But they hoover up a percentage of interested buyers. So mm-hmm. think about you're the, you're the seller. Where do you go to sell your company? You go on Google and you type in sell my business and you get battered with all these fairly slick marketing campaigns. So therefore, you, as buyers, we can't afford to ignore that part of the market because they hoover up a certain percentage of active sellers, but they come with a massive health warning, really. So that's that's kind of the, the broker route. And there are, if you if you search the market, you'll find there are smaller operators, so a little bit more professional, a little bit more focused on actually getting a deal done as opposed to just trying to cut the fee. But then the the other route to market for me is what I call the direct route. So this is reaching out directly to, to business vendors and building a relationship with them. And, and the, the key techniques that we use, um, big big fans of LinkedIn. Um, you know, most business operators these days are on LinkedIn in some form or other. And um, mm-hmm. so we actually have some software that we work with a mutual friend of ours and that that just constantly turns through LinkedIn, reaching out to people yeah. who are interested in selling and we get steady flow of leads through that which is which is good and linkedin is a good example for me of, of the principles of networking so there are other there are other key categories that we reach out to on a regular basis so um lawyers who work in the mergers and acquisition sector the MA lawyers mm-hmm. um, it's worth bearing in mind that most of the time they're they're reacting to a brief from a seller so you might be a little bit late but they're in the market and Sometimes they fall over, and they might go, oh, "I've just had a deal fall over." Then you know, are you interested in this business? So that's when yeah. cultivating that relationship can work. Another one that's very good, we're finding more and more, is um, what used to be called IFAs and now called wealth managers. Yeah, now, they're really good people to work with because they want the customer to sell their business to get what they call a liquidity event, because then they get money to to invest. So they're really interested and they're motivated to introduce their potential client to us as a buyer in order to get these from the deal. So they're, they're good guys to work with. And they're not, you're not in any kind of competition. It's a very complimentary relationship there. Um, then you've got corporate finance teams. Now, 
And there are some brokers that call themselves corporate finance, but they're really brokers. And then you get corporate finance teams that are often either an offshoot of a, an accountancy firm or part of an accountancy firm. And those guys, in my experience, are a little bit better because you actually understand the numbers and you can have a meaningful conversation around balance sheet value, leverage, and so on. Whereas one of the one of the issues with them is you're dealing with a sophisticated, uh, you know, person on the other end if they're, you know, obviously being represented by a corporate finance house and potentially either one of the big four or more than likely a regional firm. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're trying to buy a business like me, for example, that own their own commercial property. And hopefully buy from unsophisticated vendors that don't understand property cap rates and yields yeah. and whatever then you know as soon as they appoint a corporate finance house they obviously you know first thing they'll do opco proco let's split the property from the business which yeah. is, is a nightmare for me and yeah. so yeah. you know I, I understand what you're saying but they are obviously they've done all the dd for you they've got yeah. the full analysis and yeah. it makes life sometimes easier yeah yeah Absolutely. And then, and then actually, the one that often gets overlooked is, is, is your existing network, your friends and acquaintances. You know, like mm-hmm. you, I've got a fairly extensive business network built up over the years. And very often, it's just a case of telling your mates what you're doing, that I'm now yeah. looking to buy companies. And they'll go, oh, my mate, Fred's thinking about exiting. You'd be amazed. It, 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 often, it's a case of just put it out there and yeah, tell people. No, absolutely. And, you know, and-, and then you start to get those opportunities, really. So, I would, I would, like you say, I would rank corporate finance teams, the proper ones, probably bottom of the list. But as an example of, you'd be surprised, Grant Thornton, which is one of the biggest firms, they actually now have a, a small team of people dealing with small cap businesses. Yeah. Because why not? <laughs> so, um, so it's quite interesting. You know, some Absolutely. They are less sophisticated for sure. Yeah. But one, one, one uh, strategy for sourcing that you never mentioned, which is, um, is, is one of my favorites is you know snail mail or lumpy mail direct mail um, and it still works we're, we're doing it every week and uh, you know response rates can be low but right now everybody at home um, you know as long as you can get their home address you know everybody is at home just now obviously and uh, you've got their attention and you know daily you know I'm able to get uh, one letter every second day you know well, nobody that- sends that, yeah, that, that, that's very true, mate. And we do use direct mail. That's the other bit of the direct that, that um, mm. I, I would have talked about. So but there's an interesting debate around direct mail. So um, I think particularly with, with COVID, there is a proportion of businesses that are furloughed, not in their offices, mm. etc. So some of that will fall on you know stony ground, if you like. But if you're thinking about the types of businesses we, we were just chatting about, there, there will be st- plenty of companies that have carried on operating and are still going to their factories and their yeah, offices yeah. and so on. So, and lumpy mail, interesting stuff arriving in the post. Um, mm-hmm. Years ago, we did a campaign where we sent a left, uh, a left Wellington boot <laughs> to twenty people and said, "If you come to this meeting, we'll give you the right Wellington boot." <laughs> And everyone turned up because <laughs> they yeah. got a set of wellies. So yeah, absolutely, yeah. and that's a high value proposition. You know, yeah, noticed. yeah. I mean, yeah. A pair of wellies back then wasn't massively expensive, but you know, we've done that. We, I've done a campaign with footballs. You know, a, a football in a box, and it was for a recruitment specialist. It was the idea yeah. of if you're a football manager, you, you wouldn't hire a player without watching him play, kind of thing. So yeah. hence the football. And, with a little bit of creativity and a little bit of brainstorming, you can come up with all kinds of things. I've known people send an e-bag and a Kit Kat. Yeah, we've, we've, done, we've done that. 
Yeah, yeah. Take we, we've done that quite a lot. See, yeah. see, one of the most innovative I've heard of recently is uh, is a friend of mine. He owns jeweler stores, and uh, his top ten clients obviously produce most of the profit. Uh, so he sent them all. It cost them three hundred pounds per you know case, but it was uh, six whiskies um, in a box plus the six glasses, and then the water jug, and then the water little uh, droplet thing. And he, he then created the, this whole event, a Zoom event. So it's a virtual whiskey tasting evening yeah. where all, for the first time ever, all these top 10 clients or top 10% of clients actually got together on the same Zoom, met each other. You know, imagine the potential, you know, uh, business that could have been gone on then because they're all very ultra high net worth people. And um, it went down a storm. Yeah. And eventually the, uh, the chat that was supposed to be billing him 300 pounds for this whiskey per customer, give them it for free because of the orders that the supplier got <laughs> immediately. Uh, for, you know, so it's, that's cross-fertilization of customers. You know, who could actually you cross-fertilize with same kind of customers that, you know, buy the same kind of stuff and it's, potentially yeah, it's get... Back, it's back to that complementary relationship, isn't it? So yeah. your, your guys teamed up with a whiskey guy. And the whiskey guys benefited from you know the, the opportunity and the business yeah. that's come along, so that becomes a self-liquidating offer, really. Yeah, there's a really nice. really good book I had years ago in in the sales promotion industry, as it used to be called, and I kept it for many years, which was this brilliant table of type of promotion and where it best works: self-liquidating, increasing football, driving sales, and so on. Perhaps then we should we, I should read that out and share that with you for you know for your yeah. audience because the really simple, easy to understand table. You kind of what do I want to do? I want to drive mm -hmm. sales? Ah, I can cross reference it, pick in the box, do one of those. It's great, yeah. really, really simple but very effective. So I, I think yeah, you're right. Cool. You know, think, thinking laterally and finding complementary relationships is is a great way to stimulate those, yeah. those opportunities. Right, I've got a question for you. Through the years, what's been your most valuable lesson, number one? And then number two, what is what kind of failure have you been through or apparent failure that uh, obviously something never went to plan? Uh, and we've both had a few of them. But what was the, the, the biggest learning, the gift in that failure then took forward to then grow from there? So biggest lesson you've ever learned. And number two, what's the biggest lesson from a kind of failure in your life? Cracking questions. I think... I think probably the biggest positive lesson is learning to be okay with walking away from something yeah. uh, because it's positive in, in two ways. One, it releases energy. We, it's easier for us all to get wrapped up in a deal or what we perceive to be a deal and we want it. And I've learned that the universe tends to pull stuff away from you the more you want it. The more you let go on the energy and you're not attached to the outcome, the more it comes to you. So letting energy go around something that you want as opposed to something that you'd like to happen, but it's okay if it doesn't, I, I think is a really positive lesson. And, you know, I have had situations where we walked away from a deal and then the deal comes back to us in a different format. The most painful is failure. Well, two things. Allow your ego to drive a deal. And by that, I did a deal where, you know, I came into the deal where the, the original buyer was trying to buy it, couldn't buy it. And I let my ego overtake it. It's like, oh, I can get this done. I'm a master of the universe. I can do this deal. And didn't pay attention to some of the warning signs in the due diligence. And we ended up uh, having extremely painful 
Um, eventually, the company went into admin. We lost the best part of a quarter of a million quid in cash and so on. And the worst thing was we lost a year of our lives trying to fix something that was basically set up to fail. And that was my ego. You know, my ego drove that deal. Um, yes, I got the deal done. Yes, I, I, I patted my ego on the back and then immediately went into a spiral of disappointment. So um, but, but I suppose you know, that's a great lesson. For the deal. Yeah, and that's a great lesson for the future because usually when you get slapped in the face by something like that, it's the first on the checklist you know, to make sure you're, you're completely you're detached from the outcome of the deal. Yeah. Um, you know, yeah. you know, one of my first, second mentor, actually, you know, on your other point, never ever stop investigating and never be worried, you know, never concerned if you have to walk away from a deal. If you spent money or not, um, you know, investigate right up to completion kind of thing. Uh, you the know, the deal of the time. century comes along every week. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you, Absolutely. If you, if you're pouring energy into something that, that you know, you really, really want, I've learned over the course of time that that somehow ends up going away from you. Whereas if you're okay with it, and if it's meant to be, it'll happen. If it isn't, it isn't. It's okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and having humility around your own ability as well, for me, is a great lesson. You know, you're a super, and I'm not saying this, you know, to puff you up, mate, but you are a super smart guy. But I think you're like me, that you've realized that well, I'm, every day I'm still learning. All right, I know yeah. some stuff, and it's it's pretty good, it's pretty clever, but every day is a school day, and that's my approach pretty much. Yeah. You know, I know it's no, awesome, but I always want to learn more. Yeah, I'm, uh, every day I want to learn stuff. Student first, student always. That's, that's yeah. rule number one. Um, so imagine if you had to stop it all now. What would be your one big regret? What's your one big thing you haven't done yet? That you're setting your mind on and because it hasn't stopped you're going to achieve what is that one big thing well the big thing for us is executing a roll-up so i've bought and sold mixed results i've had some successes i've had some failures but the one thing that we're engaged in now is is a kind of i suppose you might call an aggregation so a roll-up of uh, what's called a horizontal integration so specific companies all of a similar nature bringing them together deal by deal, creating a much bigger balance sheet, leveraging that balance sheet and exiting for an eight-figure sum. So that's that's really my focus. That's what I'm excited about. That's what we're working on. And we we believe that we've got some, some great processes in place to execute that in relatively near future. So that's probably my biggest exciting motivation that we're working on at the moment. That's the big thing. Right, awesome. That sounds, that's a great goal to go after. And then... Another question, if you had, if there was a big gigantic billboard where the whole planet could see it, they all everybody had visibility to this billboard. It's only your message that is allowed on there. What would it say and why? Okay. <laughs> That's a great question. What would it say and why? It would say something along the lines of you only get one shot at this to the best of our knowledge. Yeah. But try to wake up every day and enjoy that day to the best of your ability, whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. Love it. I absolutely love it. And I know you do as well, Guy, in terms of you've got your vision, uh, this vertical integration, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's obviously going to happen. You've done a number of acquisitions already in this space uh, and exciting to kind of work with you going forward. And yep. uh, so for anyone just starting out in the space and would love to get involved in acquisitions, 
of businesses that may or may not include the commercial property. How would they get in touch with you, Guy? Where, where can you find you? Yeah, so um, I, I still teach entrepreneurs how to do this uh, through uh, the Business Buyers Club, which I founded in 2014. Um, just I did the numbers the other day, Dan. So uh, since 2016, when we started the Elite course, our clients, mentees have acquired £79 million pounds worth of revenue. The revenue. That's absolutely awesome. Yeah, yeah. Million. So, And that's there's one year's revenue. You know, over 10 yeah, years. That, 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 exactly, yeah. That, that's the yeah. Turnover, turnover of the companies at the point that they bought them. So, yeah. Um, so, the Business Buyers Club, um, all one word, .co.uk, uh, mm. is where we teach this stuff. And we've got ongoing programs where you get to work with me um, personally, as well as the team. And then if you're interested in investment opportunities, some people listening to this might be. Uh, the fidelisgroup.co.uk is our investment vehicle and we're opening up now more and more opportunities for co-investing in in this sector uh, in yeah. buying organized companies essentially so debt and equity opportunities are are yeah. huge now uh, so we're Absolutely. all the time so yeah always keen to have a chat every friday you and i uh, join up in clubhouse the wonderful clubhouse. new app so if you've got an iphone if you've got an android it's not going to work but Come and join right, us. Coming, coming soon. Coming yeah. soon on Android, you know? Yeah. So come, and, come and join us every Friday morning at 11 o'clock for an hour and a half of fun. An interesting mm-hmm. live Q&A. Me and Dan are on there. So that's a great opportunity to talk to us one-to-one, ask questions, anything at all, really. Yeah. Connect with us. And, uh, and if you enjoy that, then we can take it to the next level, really. Yeah. So if you... And really, uh, obviously, if you want to know more about this, and if you want to understand how Guy spent six years growing a business and then six months buying a business that someone else had grown for six years, and you want to learn how to do that as well, get in touch with Guy, uh, businessbuyersclub.co.uk or Fidelis Group. Like us, we are uh, do, doing a very similar thing. Um, and we're obviously opening that up to investors in our investor club at Taylor Capital. And what really excites me, Guy, is a fractionalization of yep. business buying so we can you know invite the masses into being an owner yep. shareholder in a business on a Absolutely. fractional basis with the uh, blockchain ethereum you know accelerating I, th- I think you know the future of doing offerings like internal offerings instead of being on someone else's exchange actually having your own exchange and that for me is really exciting going forward and uh yeah, so we both love acquisitions of businesses, commercial property. Uh, why? It's simply the fastest route to create cash flow and grow your wealth. And uh, I know, and we also love, both Guy and herself, we love to share the profits with our investors. Uh, nothing nothing better than paying people money. It's just yeah, an awesome thing. 100%. I, I get huge yeah. satisfaction dumping seven figures into a seller's bank account at completion. Genuinely, I do. And seeing yeah. that life-changing event and, and helping others to achieve it as well really gives me a lot of pleasure and I know you do too so it's going to be exciting over the next few years we're, we're going to be working together more closely on opportunities that we both realize that are under our noses so that's good. absolutely yeah absolutely so Guy uh, thanks very much for being on the show um, if you want to see more uh, interviews with uh, people from the world of acquisitions businesses and commercial property then go to taylorcapital.co.uk and uh, every single one will be put on the on the blog on the website there and if you want to find out more information about investing uh, in businesses or commercial property go to taylorcapital.co.uk or fidelis group 
and, uh, and there'll be more opportunities there. But it's all left for me to say, Guy, thanks very much, uh, Bunny, for coming on the show. Look forward to it, uh, working forward together in the future on deals because we all love deals, we all love learning and deals. And uh, thanks very much, buddy. We'll see you next time. My pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Take care. Cheers, Guy.